Buenos días. Welcome to Wisdom in Talmud. My name is Chico Martes. I am no longer Portuguese or Pentecostal or uh, Puerto Rican, whatever. I'm no longer this. And I find out on the internet, I am a Jew. <laughs> Unlike you, I am a Jew. But I am not happy with this, so I find I pay more shekels on the internet, and I find out that, in fact, I am a Levite. I am a Levite, not like you, you goyim. I am a Levite. I'm not happy with this either. So I pay more shekel on the internet, and I find out, in fact, I am a son of Aaron. And you are just sons of guns. But I am a son of Aaron. And I am very vexed. I have thorn in my side about this Melchizedek teaching that is gone everywhere. And I tell you, unless you have been teaching Tractate Talmud and Mishnah for 10 years on temple, you don't know anything. <laughs> Nothing. At all. In fact, I have a pyramid. It is my Nicolaitan pyramid of hierarchy, and I invite you all to come under it. I want to throw a vase at you. I mean, a vassal treaty at you. And salt. I want a salt, too. A salt ancient Near Eastern Middle Eastern kebab treaty. To confuse you... Because at this point, it is all about my knowledge and your lack of it. Which to me is Gnosticism. Gnosticism to me, Gnosticism to you. I'm going to speak to a lawyer about this to make sure that I am on the right track. But I think this Malkitzerik is a problem. And I am very upset about it. In fact, you can visit me on Google Hangouts, me with my little munchkins. They are me, big chief, they little chiefs. They support me in everything I do. You have got to stop spreading the Malkitzedic. It is too much. Too much. I am desperate at this point, extremely vexed that I am down here at Lumpty Hooda's studio. You know, Lumpty Huda, the guy that threw out the book of Hebrews. Well, I'm in his Lumpty Huda studio teaching you, Hebrews 8, chapter 4, my sheep verse, that the Melchizedek is not for you. It's for everybody but you. <laughs> I'm excited about the Temple Institute, the Levitical hierarchy, and you must believe, because the New World Order is setting it up, and I am setting you up. <laughs> Welcome to Wisdom in Talmud. My name is Chico Martes. <laughs> Baruch Hashem, Yahweh, you guys needed to be lightened up. Everything is so serious. My goodness. My goodness. Baruch Hashem, Yahweh. Some of you knew what I was talking about, and some of you are just plain stumped. Let's wrap it up with Yaakov, the wrap-up. Yaakov, the half-brother of Yahusha. I'm super excited that we've spent these past weeks teaching about Yaakov and what truly is this about that this generation is being drawn into the realm of covenant priesthood. Not Talmud, Mishnah, and Tractate, and all of that nonsense. And that is what is so exciting, that people reaching to us, out to us from all over the globe, as this spreads like wildfire, and people are being redeemed and brought into Torah, that is covenant Torah, not Gnosticism, and truly, really experiencing the Ruach HaKodesh under the mighty hand of Yahusha, our Kohen Haggadah. And Yaakov knew him more than anyone, his half-brother Yaakov, under the Malkitzedic priesthood. And we know that as he taught this book, 
that we have gone and spent this time unpacking these past weeks, that this message that he spoke of was to those in the vicinity of Jerusalem, and that he wrote this as a homily. It wasn't to be a letter, but to be a homily, to be spoken orally to the audience. And who was that audience in this wrap-up of everything that we've looked at over the past weeks? The audience was a Hellenized audience, and they were the recipients of this homily in the area around Jerusalem, Yerushalayim. They were in the diaspora. They were out there in the exile. And many of them in Phoenicia, Cyprus, and Antioch, including many Jewish believers that had fled Israel after the martyrdom of Zephaniah, Stephen, Stephen. And we know that this was the dispersed covenant people, the people of Yahweh. We know that Stephen, Zephaniah, was in fact a Hellenistic Greek speaking Yahudim. And that we know from Marseille Shlechim, Acts chapter 6 and verse 4. Who was this homily to? This homily was to all 12 tribes. And this is the thing. This reveals to us that the majority of the so-called Jews that Yahushua was interacting with were none other more than Talmudic synagogue of Satan. They were not even Jews. They were pretending to be Jews. Those who say they are Jews that in fact are not. Because we know that the 12 tribes were still in exile. The majority of those in the land were pretending to be Jews but were in fact not. And this is the same opposition that we are coming up against today in this Malkitzedic priesthood. Those claiming to be something that they simply are not. Because the only blood that matters is the blood of the Kohen Haggadol Yahushua HaMashiach. So all comedy aside, really, all comedy aside, the seriousness of it is... But the fact is, the Malkitzedic message is a burr in the flesh of those that are totally capitulated to the Illuminati New World Order. And the third temple, that the Temple Institute came out on the 5th of July saying that they have a huge announcement tomorrow, July 12th. Now we have to understand that Obama, look what his name means in the Hebrew, is... Lightning falls from the great heights, bend the knee, and the Pope are in cahoots with the Temple Institute, which is linked to the last day's Sanhedrin, and this is what we're up against. And all the lemmings are following this Talmudic non-wisdom to the very, very slaughterhouse that is about to be set up. So... All comedy aside, yes, it's serious. But we are blessed that we have the anointing, the eyes to see, and the Ruach Kakodesh to discern what Torah is and to rightly divide the word of truth. If the real Jews had returned in 520 before the common era in the days of Ezra as sacred history, and some of these people like to espouse, then Yaakov would be addressing nine tribes, would he not? But he wasn't. He was, in fact, addressing 12 tribes. You see, recorded history, recorded history tells us that 12 tribes were still scattered at the time of this homily in and outside Judea, outside of Judea in the first century. Now, as Yaakov writes this homily, to be orally addressed, he is addressing the persecution. How many of you have been persecuted because you're associated with the Torah? How many of you then get further persecuted because you refine the line and you narrow the road and you become even narrower in your understanding of what Torah is? It is covenant Torah in relation to the Kohen Haggadah who is resurrected and sitting at the right hand of Yahuwah. And you cannot throw out the sheep verse in Hebrews 8.4 to try and be a stumbling block to the Malkitetic priesthood. 
because it doesn't work. Just like the Christian church throughout the sheep verse of Matthew 5.17, that didn't stumble us either. We keep on going. We keep on going. And that is truly the calling of this last days, Kedoshim. He was addressing persecution. There was a very rich Jewish Hebraic atmosphere that permeates this homily. The meeting of the assembly place, it was still called the Episynagogue, the synagogue. There was no church. There was no Christians. This is way before 325 of the Common Era, way before the invention of the church. In fact, there is no development of self-consciously Christian theology in the whole homily. That's why I love it. It's free from all of that nonsense. The object of this book is to strengthen my faith and your faith. And it has done that for me. It truly has. In the midst of any persecution, my faith is strengthened because of spending this time in this book. And I pray you guys be encouraged and that you be strengthened. You be strengthened because the persecution's here and it is only going to increase. And that is the one thing that we were promised that would happen, right? Not pie in the sky, but persecution. And who were being persecuted? And who were they that were persecuting? It was the wealthy Jewish Levitical hierarchy that were persecuting those that were following the Melchizedek. They were defrauding them, and they were oppressing them, and they were setting them up for slaughter with the new world order. There's nothing new under the sun. We are just many generations later, now in that third wheel of prophetic prophetic history. The language as we've dealt into these scriptures is very Septuagintal, with only 13 words in the homily of Yaakov that aren't found in the Septuagint, giving the Greek a very, very Semitic feel as you go through this. It's got a very Semitic feel. And we understand that Greek was the international language. It was the language of the dispersion. It was the language of commerce. It was what was this audience was addressed and this homily written in. We need to look and establish what that faith is that is inside of me. That faith is that is inside of you. Chapter 1, verse 3, we are spoken of here as the five virtues of emunah. We need to have patience. Number two, we need to have endurance. Number three, do you have fortitude? I've got fortitude. Number four, steadfastness. Number five, perseverance. And then in the 14th verse of that first chapter, we get into that family tree of wickedness, that family tree. And it is, isn't it? Doesn't it just come down that generational line? The struggles that I have, it's not with the culture. I couldn't care less about the culture. I have no problem with changing culture. That's why I'm over here, right? My struggles are overcoming my family tree. Those deep-rooted things, you know? The way that I heard my parents communicate. The way that I was raised in my house. Though I didn't realize it, but now when I have the children and you have your children or grandchildren, that's when you see, well, hang on a minute. That doesn't sound like me. Right? That sounds like somebody else in my family. And we need to cut that family tree of generational iniquity at the root. Because there's three generations of sin in the family tree. Lust is the mother of sin, and lust is the grandmother of death. Lust is the sin nature, that is the grandmother. Sin is the mother, and death, the result of sin, well, that's the daughter. And just like the harlot, it entices and it It entices and it seduces us, does it not? Entices us and seduces us, and it's often with the tongue, is it not? But we understand through this homily that Yaakov was then elected to what's called in the Scripture here, the Episcopate. He was elected to the Episcopate, and this is extremely important because this is the missing history of Yaakov, the book of James. Yaakov is the undisputed 
successor of Yahusha. He is the bishop of bishops. He is the archbishop. He is the archapostolos. He's the pillar of the community of believers. He is. And that's something that the institutionalized church has buried for millennia. And they can trot out the Pope right now with Barack Obama and tie it up with the Levitical hierarchy and the Temple Institute and there do the same job that they did in 70 of the common era on those that are deceived. That's why this message has got so many people going, whoa, and he who has a blood-tipped ear, you are just drawn But those that aren't, that are blinded and do not have the Ruach, they go further and further into the wormhole of religion, heaviness, and hierarchy. You start out Portuguese and you end whatever, and you end up a son of Aaron. It begins with a P. (laughs) Sacred history is something that we have come to dislike more and more and more as we read the scripture. Because we see that it is a setup. It's historical truth that we're interested in as disciples, as Talmudim. Not sacred history, not your little shrines that we can't tackle, but historical truth. And sacred history has led us down the garden path to deception. Sacred history has led us to believe that the Romans burnt down and destroyed the temple in 70 of the common era. But historical truth informs us by way of Josephus that it was the Levitical priesthood under Annas that set fire to the temple. So now how's your Talmud, right? It was the Levitical priesthood that set fire to the temple under Annas. It was an inside job rather than let it fall into the true priesthood of Malchizedek's hands. They'd rather burn it all down than let it fall into the hands of the true believers. That's what you're seeing today. And that's why this is more pressing and people literally are getting vexed. They can't even communicate properly and edifyingly teach. It becomes such a burr in their flesh that they are so vexed and hostile about the message. But this is a message of encouragement and enlightenment and inspiration. I'm more inspired than I've ever been in my life. I mean, this is powerful. Wow. And as the days get darker, the light gets brighter. It truly does. It truly does. We are salt and light. Man, what's wrong with that person? You know, and you're just like, well, I have a hope that you don't have. I have a hope and I have got vision, a vision that you can't even comprehend. Do you want to talk about it? And they usually say, no. (laughs) The Levites... The Levites, the Levites set fire and destroyed the temple rather than step aside and allow the 20,000 Malkitzedic zealots, those zealots that were heralding Yahusha as their Kohen Haggadah, they would rather set fire to the temple than step aside and let the true priesthood take over after the passions erupted after the death of Yaakov at the temple steps. It's recorded that Titus did everything in his power to quench the flames. To quench the flames. Hippolytus writes that the group always connected with Yaakov, what we know today as the priesthood of Malkitzedek, were actually called Nassims. That's a combination of Nazarenes and Essenes. That was the priesthood of Malkitzedek. Hippolytus 5.1 and 10.5. There's something that's so important that comes up, this phrase within the homily of Yaakov. Chapter 1, verse 25, and chapter 2, verse 12. What is this law of liberty? Well, is it that I just love my neighbor and uh, fry some fish on Friday? 
love my neighbor and love God? Is it that simple? We can simplify it down to pretty much my own religion? No, it's not. The law of liberty, this law of liberty is something with teeth. It's concrete. It is something we can live by and sink our very life into. It's the instruction, it's the teaching of Yahuwah that sets a person at liberty. That's what Torah is. It's the teaching and instruction of Yahuwah that sets you at liberty. What, Yahuwah delivered you from slavery so he could put you into slavery? Well, what, we just trade one tyrant for another? No, Yahuwah delivered us from slavery so he could set us at liberty under his care under his tutorage, under his teaching and his instruction because he wants to liberate us, give us freedom. Freedom from the traditions and tractates of man. Not to get shackled up that you don't know anything unless you've spent 10 years delving into temple, tractate and Talmud. I spent 24 years studying the scripture And I don't even know it enough. And I plan on spending every single moment of my life doing that more and more and more. You could spend 80 years studying Scripture and it's still not enough. But I'd rather be studying Scripture than studying the traditions of men, no matter how Gnostic you may think that that is. It's Gnosticism. Gnosticism from the Greek word Gnostis, to seek knowledge. I don't seek knowledge. I seek chokmah, wisdom. And wisdom is the fear of Yahuwah. And you will only understand the fear of Yahuwah by studying his scripture, not rabbinical nonsense. So don't be intimidated when somebody tells you that you haven't been studying Talmud, Tractate, and Temple for 10 years when you've been studying scripture for 20 or 10, or 5 years. It doesn't matter, because it is the word that is sharper than a two-edged sword, right? It is the word that will pierce the flesh and cut asunder. Not any highbrow Gnosticism, which is nothing more than Nicolaitanism. Hierarchy. The Nicolaitan pyramid that we see in the book of Revelation. That law of liberty is the teaching and instruction of Yahuwah that sets us up and it establishes us as a people walking in covenant Torah at liberty. And what are we at liberty from? We're at liberty from something. We're at liberty from the curses and condemnation that are contained within the Levitical book of the law. The book of the covenant is made anew and it is what liberates Israel not from being under the law as a whole as the institutionalized church would have had us believe for all those years, leaving you stranded and lawless outside of covenant fidelity. But in fact, it liberates you from the imposed to, not agreed to Levitical book of the law, thereby It provides you the freedom from the Levitical interpretation of the book of the law, which is the schoolmaster, the tutor, the chico, martes, to you, today, tomorrow, and every day. Chapter 1, verse 12, we see the Genesis face. I've got to lighten it up with you guys. It is Shabbat. It is a time of joy and simcha. Rejoice, rejoice. And Yahweh says, rejoice. Chapter 1, verse 12. The Genesis face we see here is how it comes up in the interpretation and translation where Abraham's face, in fact, met Yahweh and was brought into the covenant, that law of liberty. The word of Yahweh is, in fact, the Genesis mirror that Genesis mirror that shows you the Genesis face that leads you back to the Genesis law of liberty. And where were the Malkitzedic covenants established? Genesis 12 and Genesis 15. The Malkitzedic covenant adherents are the people that are supposed to be 
the doers of the word. This is what the homily of Yaakov is about. Look at chapter 1, verse 25. But whoever looks into the perfect law of liberty... You have to ask the question, did the Levites live within the perfect law of liberty? Were they at freedom? Or were there severe restrictions that were placed upon the Levitical priesthood and the people? Did the patriarchs, on the other hand, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, live within the perfect law of liberty? Were they unrestricted? And were they in the realm of covenant Torah fidelity? You see? There's a dichotomy here at play. A dichotomy here at play. It's amazing. You see, Yahuwah freed Israel from its bondage in Egypt to give them the book of the covenant so that they would be free at liberty and be blessed, but still with under the safety of his Torah. But it was covenant Torah. Abraham, Isaac, and Yaakov, they never knew a Levitical priest. Not one. The law of liberty is, in fact, that perfect, that perfect law spoken by Yaakov, the half-brother of Yahusha, given by Yahuwah in order to safeguard the freedom of you. That's what the law of liberty is. It's to safeguard your freedom because there are people that are trying to ensnare you and entrap you with Gnosticism. How do I know this? Because I have been delivered from Gnosticism myself. I came out of the church and I went into rabbinical Torah for many years. And then I had a hard time, something devastating in my life. And all of my knowledge, all of my wisdom, and all of that left me no hope. And it was only the faith that I had when I was 24 years old that was still in me, that carried me through the tragedy in my life. My intellect, my logic, and my reason failed me. But faith is what brought me through. The love, the first love. Do not forget your first love. And that is the Kohen Haggadal, Yahusha HaMashiach. All of Matthew's smarts, all of your smarts, all of your Gnosticism will lead you nowhere. But the love of Yahusha, your first love, that is is what solidifies the saints. And that's what you're going to need in the trenches, in a foxhole, in the time of tribulation. Not knowing the foolishness of men, but the faith of the saints. We understand now another phrase that we see as we delve into this covenant. Torah of liberty identified can be none other than the book of of the covenant, Exodus 19, verse 4. The law of liberty, that perfect law spoken of by the half-brother of Yahushua. The book of the covenant safeguards us. It keeps us safe. Once divorced from the book of the covenant at the golden calf in Exodus chapter 32, any law bears children unto what? Bondage. That's what Galatians 4.24 says. Once that covenant is broken, any law will bear children unto bondage until the Ruach of regeneration is imparted with bringing about the new covenant Torah spanning back to the book of a covenant that was established at Exodus 24. You see, people are bringing what? Forth. Talmud, tractate, and temple knowledge, and it will do nothing more than bear children to bondage. And that's what it does. Chapter 2, verse 8 is very rich. If you fulfill the royal Torah, a very interesting phrase, according to the Katuv, you shall love your neighbor as yourself, you will do well. And we know that that verse has been trodden all over by religion and minimized. But it should be elevated and escalated to the Malkitetic realm because the royal law, according to Scripture, royal is kingly, right? You need a king. Royal is kingly. And the Greek word order points us to exactly where Yaakov is referencing. A law ye are fulfilling royally or kingly. And the only Torah that was Malki, that was kingly, in respect to persons, not a person fulfilling it, was prior to Exodus 24.12. There is no disputing that. 
Exodus 19, verse 6. And you shall be to me a Malchut of Kohanim, a Kadosh nation. That's kingdom Torah. The Greek word order establishes that the background for Yaakov's teaching is in fact the book of the covenant, which provided the Torah's true standard of righteousness as lived by the patriarchs, and it was made anew by Yahusha's death and the ratification of the Melchizedek priesthood. That is the royal law. This is covenant Torah. Genesis 1.1 all the way through to Exodus, Shemot 24, verse 11. That's the Shabbat, the dietary requirements, the feasts of Yahuwah, and walking in what the seed of Abraham should be walking in, covenant Torah, as a royal kingdom priesthood. That is the impending change that is spoken about in Bereshit 49. There is an impending change that will happen. There has been a change to the Torah, a revision back to the higher order that already was, the very higher order that was in eternity that walked out on the earth. It is on the earthly realm for you and I today because we aren't just these spiritual beings. We are in flesh and blood. And the way we walk it out is from the inside out, right? I'm going to clean the inside of this cup. That's what we do. Chapter 2, verse 14. Now, this is interesting because there are no contradictions between Yaakov, James, and Shaul, Paul. But there are, in fact, contrasts. No contradictions between James and Paul but in fact contrasts between James and Paul, Yaakov and Shaul in five particular areas. Excuse me, it's worth mentioning again because this is very important. Number one, the situation. Shaul was speaking of the way on being justified as he was countering legalism. That's what Shaul was talking about, whereas Yaakov is speaking on the life of the justified and is countering lawlessness. Different position. Number two, the meaning of the term works. For Shaul, it was the works of the book of the law, Galatians 3.10. But for Yaakov, it was the works of faith and love. So when they were talking about works, they were talking about different things. You can't lump them together. Number three, the meaning of justification. For Shaul, it meant acquittal. It was a legal Roman term. It was forensic, microscopic in nature. For Yaakov, it means vindication, the justification of one's profession of faith, meaning if you lay claim to faith, then you must justify it, demonstrate it by doing works. That's what we're talking about. Number four, the intention. Shaul was contrasting two opposing ways of salvation. Salvation by works or salvation by grace through faith. Whereas Yaakov's intent was to contrast two kinds of faith. A living faith and a dead faith. And finally, number five, the place of works. Shaul argues against works as a means of justification. And Yaakov argues in favor of works in the lives of those that are already justified. There is no contradiction between Shaul and Yaakov. There is just lack of understanding. It's that knee-jerk reaction, but it's not that way. Chapter 2, verse 22. Do you see how Emunah, faith, worked with his mitzvot? And by mitzvot was his Emunah made perfect. And the katuv, the scripture was fulfilled, which said, Avraham believed Yahuwah, and it was counted to him for Zadokah. And he was called the Hava, the friend of Yahuwah. I'm going to have to be careful not to get into that accent. I like it very much to die to you. My name is Chico Martez. I don't know where I came up with that now. What was the other one? Humpty Luda or something? Gee, Lumpy Huda. I love you, brethren. You support me. 
You're going to get it too. <laughs> we know, though, we know from the scripture that Abraham was already a believer in Bereshit 12, in chapter 12 of Genesis. This was the inception point of the Malkitzedic covenant, meaning his justification was then verified by Yahweh at Genesis 15. That was when his justification was verified. He was already a believer in Bereshit 12, but at Genesis 15, his justification was verified. This is what we see. The covenant between the pieces. This demonstrated that salvation is wrapped up within the covenants of promise. The only way to access these covenants of promise is by faith. And it's faith in the son's death penalty payment of Genesis 15, which will lead into the production of covenant works of the Malkitzedic Torah contained in the fullness of Bereshit, Genesis 12. You see, we have to reverse thread it, Abraham Avinu, because of the covenant that was broken. Genesis 12 to Genesis 15 for Abraham, but for us, we have to go from Genesis 15 through the death of the Son. And that then connects us back to Genesis 12. It's a reverse thread because we're on the side of the breaking of the covenant that it now needs to be reestablished. But Abraham was on the side of the making of the covenant. But there's one thing that never changed, never was broken. The oath which I swore by my mouth, spoken of then by the psalmist, Psalm 110, spoken of then again in the book of Ivrim, Hebrews, chapter 7, chapter 6. Then we get into chapter 3, the watchfulness, the taming of the tongue. Yaakov mentions it in each chapter for a total of nine times. It's a bit. It's like a bit. The point, it's a small thing that control can control a large thing. Some are larger than others, but it does control that large thing or that small thing can control the large thing, no matter how lumpy you are. The tongue directs our life either towards spiritual maturity, which will then come with what? If we discipline the tongue, if we correct the tongue, if we put a bit on the tongue, then we will have rewards in the next life. But if we can't discipline the tongue, if we can't put a bit on the tongue and rein in the tongue, then it will lead to a loss of kingdom rewards. We find in chapter 3, verse 6, it sets on fire the course of our Israelite race that rolls on like a wheel, it says. Ton trochon tes genesis in the Greek. The tongue sets on fire that whole genesis cycle of our Israelite race that rolled out like a wheel and it burnt it with the fire of hell. And we can easily read over that, but understanding it in the frame of the Malkitzedic, what rolled out from Genesis 12 in a cycle like a wheel and ended up with the golden calf being burnt like fire at the breaking of the covenant. It rolled out from Genesis 12. It rolled into Genesis 15. It rolled into the law of liberty as you were rolled out of Egypt and set into the law of liberty. But eventually it rolled into Exodus 32 and it ended up burnt like hell in the fire as that calf was ground down and burnt that powder. If we can't control our tongue, we will destroy our return to the Genesis cycle wheel. That's the wheel of covenants. The covenants that roll out from Genesis 12 to 15. The Exodus 19 wheel of covenants that sets aflame our Israelite race from being a malchut of Kohanim, a kingdom of priests and a kadosh, holy nation. And then in chapter 4, verse 1, wars and fights, where do they come from? Hedonai. Hedonism, that's where the wars and fights come from. They war inside of your members. It's hedonistic. That's what it is. But we do need to do works, do we not? Not to be justified. We are already justified, but to show and demonstrate that we are justified, we should be that light unto the nations. 
There's 12 tribal traits for the Malkitzedic priesthood of these works that we should be doing. 12 tribal traits of works that we should be doing as Malkitzedic Kohanim. Number one, we need to clean the inside of the cup. We need to build our own tabernacle from the inside out. Cleanse your hands and purify your hearts, you filthy sinners. Yaakov, James chapter 4, verse 8. We're not supposed to be cleansing a new world order temple for the Illuminati. Those that are doing that are in their flesh and carnal and not doing the work, which is an inner work to demonstrate to an outer decaying world. Number two, we have to hate the world and align our life, our tongue, and our practices with the kingdom of Yahweh. 1 John chapter 2, verse 15. Number three, we need to remove idols and idolatry from our houses, our lives, and worship Yahweh the way he commands us to worship him. Not in the ways that religion would have us worship him, that the pagan nations have adopted, but worship him at his Moedim. We need to take a second look at the second and fourth commandment. In fact, I think I have a teaching entitled that that's worth looking at. Number four, we need to abnegate venereal compulsions. We need to abnegate venereal compulsions. Masesh Lachim, Acts chapter 15. We need to abnegate nidar and meats which are tamay, unclean, and have blood in them. Acts chapter 15. Number six, we need to lay Torah study and Shabbat keeping piety down as the foundations of our scriptural studies before we attach to foreign doctrines. Masesh Lachim, Acts chapter 15. Number seven, we need to pay attention to those within the faith that are unable to care for themselves because of either sickness, poor health, or spouses or parents may have died or abandoned them. Yaakov chapter 1 verse 27. Number eight, we need to align ourselves vertically with Yahuwah and horizontally with man. Shemo, Exodus chapter 20. Number nine, we need to acknowledge the true name and nature of Yahuwah privately and publicly as the Elohim who sets man free from the captivity of sin. Shemo, Exodus chapter 20. We need to declare his name and it isn't the Lord and it's not God. God's on the back of my dollar bill and I don't serve him. Do you? His name is Yahuwah. It's not the Lord. Islam knows the name of their moon deity. And we need to declare the name of the one true Elohim. Number 10, we need to live and operate in the kingdom realm of honor. Presenting ourselves as a living sacrifice. Honoring the king at his feasts. Honoring the king at his festivals. Masesh Lachim, Acts 15. Shemot 20 and Romeo 12. Number 11, don't fall prey to the works of the flesh under the book of the law, but align your life under the Malkitzedic Torah, the covenant of the Ruach. Galutja 5.18. And finally, that 12th tribal trait of works that the Malkitzedic priesthood should be performing is walk out the Malkitzedic mountain oration. That's the Sermon of the Mount. We need to walk it out, Matthew 5 to 7. That needs to be our life. We walk it out. How do you begin to walk out these priestly works? By being immersed in the Malkitzedic priesthood, being released from the curses of the book of the law. And it's been an honor and a privilege over these past two, three years to immerse more people at mikvaot than I've ever done before. And the joy and the change, whether it's been at Passover, at Sukkot, at Shavuot, we have been in the waters, Ma'im Chaim. No chlorinated New World Order swimming pools with fluoride for this people. 
right? And I remember going to a conference one time and they're all doing it in the pool. And I'm like, what are you doing? Oh, we're getting mikvahed. What, in chlorine? I mean, it is mayim hayim. We understand that we live in Yahweh's realm and that it is a realm where we are living in electromagnetic frequencies and the very trees, the very stones will cry out. There is something that we don't understand about His creation. We need to embrace it. Move away from fluoride in the toothpaste and fluoride in the tap water. We need to move away from that so that we can get off of the chemtrails, get off of the pharmacia, and embrace healthy living by keeping His commandments. You know? No more Hawaiian. What are those things they do over there? What? Luau's. Yeah, how do you know? Well, you were pretty easy to... Bloody luau. We need to walk as Abraham did, didn't we? Don't we? Abraham, Yitzhak, and Yaakov. We need to walk out the covenant commandments from Bereshit, Genesis 1, all the way through to Exodus 24, 11. Ephesians 2.12 speaks of this. Kepha Olive 2 chapter verse 9 speaks of this. And Galutia chapter 3 verse 10 speaks of this. All this to say that we need to prepare because they were not prepared many in those days. And these are the days as they were the days, the final days before the month of the siege of 70 of the common era. When that lower priesthood stopped the daily sacrifices after being influenced by the righteous teacher, Yaakov. You see, the lower priesthood, the Malkizelic zealots, they stopped the daily sacrifice after being influenced by the righteous teacher. I used to teach all this Talmud tractate nonsense about going up to the Temple Mount until I discovered by conviction of the Ruach HaKodesh that it was the Anatonia Fortress and wasn't even the Temple Mount. And then I started to understand what they really had to say about my Moshiach in the Talmud. And then I understood what they were really doing in the Temple. And then I understood that they weren't even Jews, that they were Khazars, saying that they were Jews and they are not, but in fact are the synagogue of Satan. And then everything started to come on. And then I started to question Hanukkah, Purim, and the Star of David. And then guess what? The rabbit trail broadens. And then you find there are enemies more. And then you study Bolshevism and the 20th century wars and where all this came from. And Theodore Herzl in the 19th century. And your eyes became opened and these religious, religious doctrines and traditions of men, they just fall by the side. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Ruach HaKodesh saith. And it's the Ruach HaKodesh that convicted me and has convicted many of you of these things. But you have to be willing to sacrifice sacred history on the altar of truth to find historical truth. That's what you have to do. Because... Like the Malkitzedic zealots, they stopped the daily sacrifice because they were influenced by the half-brother of Yahusha. They woke up and they stopped it. They were the Zadokite zealots. And at this time, the practice was so far removed from even the book of the law because the higher priesthood weren't offering sacrifices to Yahuwah. You think that these people are honoring Yahuwah? They're not. Just like the higher priesthood at the time of this homily, they weren't offering sacrifices to Yahuwah. The daily sacrifices were being offered on behalf of the emperor and the Roman people. The sacrifices were being offered to the new world order. And when this third temple is rolled out and that fake Levitical class is elevated, you think they're going to be offering sacrifices to Yahuwah? They're going to be offering sacrifices to the New World Order Illuminati system just like it was in 70 of the Common Era. We have to learn from historical truth and Scripture, above all things, Scripture. Chapter 5, verse 1. The prosperous Sadducees and the chief priests, they were oppressing the followers of the Malkit Zedek. Their miseries 
would soon be returned to them 100-fold. Their wealth would be destroyed and their priestly way of life was destroyed also. And this was the first installment of their general judgment. And I believe that we are living in a generation that will experience the final installment of this general judgment. And that's why this message is literally like wildfire. And those that have an ear hear what the Ruach says. And those that don't are blinded. And this message becomes a burr in their very side. And you can see it. You can see the tension, the animosity, the irritation. But people want to be inspired. They want to be set free. And they want the hope when this dark world is encroaching. And that is the message of the Kohen Haggadal of the order of Malkitzedek. He is my hope. He is your hope. And he has set you up to be a Malchut Kohenim, a kingdom of priests, to minister to those that are lost and dying in the nation. And you have the power. You have the authority under Yahusha, your Kohen Haggadal, for there is... No male or female, slave or free, but you are all one in Yahusha HaMashiach. And Rav Sholiach Shaul, and I'll close with this, said, Give heed to no genealogies. Selah. Selah. Amen? Questions, comments, the wrap-up on Yaakov. I mean, what a blessing. I love the word of Yahuwah. What a blessing. Do we have Oneg? That was last week. All this makes me hungry. Baruch Hashem, Yahweh. Let's close in prayer. Abba, we thank you, Abba. We thank you, Abba, for the lightness, Abba, that you have brought into the Kedoshim, into the congregation, Abba. We thank you, Abba, for the power and the testimony of your Ruach HaKodesh in all of us, Father. We thank you for the healing and the anointing, Abba, that you've put upon the brethren here. Father, what a blessed time to look out and see all these faces excited and Abba renewed and inspired. Abba, what a generation. Go out now forth in power and mighty, mighty speaking of the word of Yahweh into the lives of those that are lost. We thank you in Yahusha's mighty name. Amen. 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 Amen.